0: Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Our ushers are coming this evening and they're carrying with them an outline sheet if you didn't pick one up already on the way in, just wave them over and they'll be happy to put one in your hands. We're opening our Bibles this evening to 2nd Samuel, 2nd Samuel, the 12th chapter, 2nd Samuel chapter 12. The Holy Spirit of God inspired the biblical authors To share a great deal of detail about the life of David. We've been considering the life of David in our Sunday evening series. In fact, 59 times the New Testament is going to name David. There are 62 chapters of the Old Testament that are containing the biography of David. The details of his life are shared in such a multitudinous way that all of us will find parallels in our own lives that the Spirit of God can use. They help us to know how to live to please the Lord. We open our Bibles this evening to Second Samuel chapter 12, and we see a prodigal king, a prodigal king who is about to have an encounter with a very powerful prophet by the name of Nathan. Second Samuel chapter 12, we begin our reading in verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said unto him, there were two men in one city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing, save one little ewe, ant, ewe lamb, which he brought up and nourished up, and it grew up together with him, with his children, that eat of his own meat, and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom as unto him as a daughter. There became a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but... He took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him, and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said unto Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said unto David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, I delivered thee, out of the hand of Saul, I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. If that had been too little, I would have moreover given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor. He shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son, for thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into his word and consider what it means to face the giant of guilt. Father, this evening, I pray that you'd open the eyes of our understanding to a theme that ought to grab every one of our attention, that we'd know what to do when the burden of guilt drags us down. Lord, for some who are carrying that kind of burden tonight, I pray that the Spirit of God would give relief through your Word, that there'd be confession and the blessing of the remission of sins through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would learn by the example of David to be able to say, I have sinned, and to rest upon your mercy, discover that your mercy and your grace are great. So, Lord, use your word this evening, and we'll thank you for it, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The story is told of a police officer who was standing at an intersection one day, the traffic light being out. He was directing traffic. As he directed traffic, he looked To the sunny side of the intersection, squinting to see if there was traffic coming. He held the traffic there. As he held the traffic there, the man who was in the lead car stepped out of the car and he said, okay, okay, I stole it. Another story that's told about a man who, wondering what time it was, called from the living room into the kitchen, hearing his son was in the kitchen, he called out, Hey son, what's the big hand on? Very sheepishly from the kitchen, he heard his son say uh on the chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> the conscience is a wonderful and powerful and mysterious gift that God has given to every man. The conscience is the witness that God gives to our souls to help us to know right from wrong. The natural man, apart from the things of God, has a conscience that's set according to the mores of society. He's taught, she's taught by the world as the conscience is engaged. But the new man, the believer, the person inhabited by the Spirit of God, has the very mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit teaches us by God's Word and calibrates our conscience by the Word of God. Jesus says, sanctify them by thy truth in John 17 and verse 17. Thy word is truth. Do you have a conscience that's calibrated by the word of God? The spirit of God then leads every believer by the application of the word of God. Every Christian ought to covet, ought to desire to have a conscience that is led by the spirit of God. David had that desire. In the 119th Psalm, David writes, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto, he says, according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee, O let me not wonder from thy commandment. Thy word, he says, have I hidden my heart, that I might not sin against God. Now, Jesus was the only person, and is the only person, who's ever lived with an absolutely perfectly, never-stained conscience. The book of Hebrews tells us that we don't have a high priest who can't be touched, or we have a high priest who can be touched, rather, with the feelings of our infirmities. He was tempted, the Word of God says, in all points like we are, yet without sin, his conscience was untainted. And 1 Peter 2 and verse 21 says, he left for us an example that we might follow in his stead. The truth is, most of us have more than a few skeletons in our closets. There are 206 bones in the human skeleton. For those whose conscience has been corrupted, there are times when it feels like all 206 bones are poking us at once. As we open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12, we discover that God provides a pathway for those would find cleansing of their corrupted conscience all of us would agree that when it comes to the conscience when it's been corrupted we find ourselves living in misery in second samuel chapter 11 david found himself guilty of coveting another man's wife in second samuel chapter 11 we discover that david entered into an immoral relationship with Uriah's wife Bathsheba. Wanting to hide this relationship, he very duplicitously brings Uriah back from the battlefield and Uriah, a man of honor, will not go in and even be with his wife. And so David plots and writes a letter, puts it in Uriah's hand and sends Uriah back to the battle, carrying a letter in his hand that he will not open but a letter that's going to be given to General Joab. And the letter says, fight in the battle and bring the front toward the Ammonites. Let everyone else retreat from Uriah, that he would die. David's hands are now bloody hands. The book of Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10 says, that committing adultery in the Old Testament times was worthy of the death penalty. The book of Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 17 says murder was also worthy of the death penalty. So we open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We see the sad story of David's misery. His conscience has been blackened. The most miserable people on the planet are those whose conscience is corrupted and they don't know how to find it cleansed. The most miserable people on the planet are those who go through failures and don't have any solution for those failures. And for nearly a year, David is allowed to live, carrying the awful burden of his corrupted conscience. In fact, David testifies of the misery, the absolute misery, of living knowing that his hands are filled with blood. He sings about it in mournful songs, in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. This evening, I'm going to have you turn with me to the 51st Psalm where David is singing about the sorrow and the sting of his corrupted conscience. Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, David says in verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David acknowledges something that a lot of people have a hard time being honest about. David says, from the time of my birth, I've been a sinner. From the time of my conception, I was born in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, Romans 5 and verse 12 says, as in Adam all died. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death is passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We don't have to teach our children to be selfish. Our children are selfish from birth because the Word of God says there's none righteous, no, not even one. David acknowledges that in Psalm 51 and verse 5. He gets down to the nitty-gritty when he says, from the time of my infancy, from the time of my conception, I have always been a sinner. Behold, he says in verse 6, this tremendous thought. Thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part, Lord. Thou shalt make me to know wisdom. God, I know that you desire truth. God, I know you desire me to be living without this awful, corrupted conscience, this burden of sin that I'm carrying. And so he cries out, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me. I will be whiter than snow. Verse 8. Make me to hear the joy and the gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. When David corrupted his conscience, David lost his song. One of the names of David is the sweet singer of Israel. But after having corrupted his conscience, David was no longer able to sing. David found himself to be a silent saint. And friend, that's just how it is when we have sinned against the Lord and against our conscience. Personalities change. The outgoing become reticent to converse. The joyful become sorrowful. Those who were once known to whistle and sing as they went about their daily business with the joy of the Lord as their strength suddenly are no longer whistling and singing. They've lost their joy. Those who were one time composed suddenly seem so eager to fly off the handle. And we ask the question this evening, how many there are, how many there are who have corrupted their conscience and are carrying this awful burden? Even it seems, for their family members and those who are closest to them, their very personality has taken on a different shape. You see, we're not built to carry the load of a corrupted conscience. When David corrupted his conscience, he lost his song. He lost his sanctification. He says in verse 9, hide thy face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me, cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. In the New Testament, those who come to Christ as Savior, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 makes it clear That the Spirit of God comes to dwell within us. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you and you're not your own? What a wonderful blessing to be inhabited through the baptism of the Spirit of God, to be indwelt by the Spirit of God, to be filled by the Spirit of God, to be led by the Spirit of God. Now, David says, Don't remove your spirit from me. David didn't live in the New Testament times, David lived in the Old Testament times. At the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God came with power, visibly as the tongues of fire, and the people there in the upper room began to speak in tongues, a demonstration that something wonderful had happened. And immediately God did a new work. The Jew and the Gentile, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, were baptized together into one body, this mystery called the church. David lived before that time. He lived well before Pentecost. He lived in a time when God, still abundant in His grace, very selectively, allowed His Spirit to lead and to guide and to empower His servants in something that theologians call a theocratic anointing, a theocratic anointing, an anointing of a specific servant for a specific time and for a specific deed. You'll see that when you study the Judges, how that Samson was anointed by God and had great strength. You'll see that even Saul, who lost the throne because of his sin, that Saul was able to prophesy and to sing and to dance among the prophets of Israel. David had witnessed Saul's loss of the Spirit of God. David had been called in to Saul's chamber and played skillfully with his hand to calm the king who had once known the joy of the Spirit of God in a special way empowering him. And king Saul had lost that joy and that power. The theocratic anointing was taken from him. And David here is crying for the same thing not to happen to him when he says, oh God, don't let the Spirit be taken from me. He'd lost his set-apart position. He'd lost his sanctification. Now for the New Testament believer, the Spirit of God will never leave us. Praise the Lord. But we can grieve the Spirit of God. We can quench the Spirit of God. We can no longer be filled with the Spirit of God because sin has caused the grief that comes to the one who ever inhabits the believer. This holy man had lost his sanctification. This man who was once known to be so ruddy and so hearty. That the troops of Israel would follow after him with great joy is no longer such a man of strength. Restore unto me, he says in verse 12, the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be covered, converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness." There was a time when David's zeal for the house of the Lord was so well known. There was a time when David was setting aside funds in order to build the temple. When he with jubilation was dancing before the ark as it was being brought up to Jerusalem. But now David's pain is so great that he found no pleasure living in a palace. The palace was a prison to him. His days were so dark That the sunshine was bringing him no warmth. This strong man had lost his strength. This strong man, who knew that God desired him to give sacrifices of holiness, was no longer strong. In fact, in the 32nd Psalm, another one of his penitential psalms, David makes this statement in the third verse. David says... When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 are called psychosomatic psalms. They help us understand that our spirit is so tightly wound in with our body that sin which affects our spirit and soul also affects our body. Bodily motions, bodily appetites. David says, when I kept silence about this burden of a guilty conscience that I was carrying, my very bones waxed old in my roaring all the day long. When I was a teenager, I remember walking into the church that my father had pastored. The lights were off. There was a fellow sitting up at the organ as I got closer to him, I recognized who it was. His son was a friend of mine, and this particular fellow <clears throat> had hit a midlife crisis with abandon. He started first to get in shape and to run, and then he was running with a neighbor, a neighbor lady. And after a time, he had left his family and was widely known to be involved with an in affair with a neighbor lady. The church spoke as they had to speak in obedience to God's command, and the man was placed under church discipline. As I got closer to where this gentleman was on the organ bench, I recognized the songs that he was playing. They were familiar hymns. And I saw that as he sat there alone playing in that dark auditorium, he sat there with tears coursing down his cheeks. He was carrying the burden of a guilty conscience and looking for some solace for his soul back in 1963, a group of 15 people involved themselves in robbing a royal train. When they robbed the royal train, the Glasgow Express, they took some 7.3 million pounds. One would think that was a successful robbery. No one knew who they were. It looked like they'd gotten away with it. But after a number of years, they were caught, and one by one, they came forward to speak Of how dreadful the years were as they lived with the knowledge that they were, quote, getting away with it. Bruce Reynolds said, Anyone who thinks that crime pays is mad. Charles Wilson said, It isn't worth it. Charles' wife said, The nagging fear of discovery gave me a permanent headache. James White says, I was at the end of my tether. I'm so glad it's over. Ronald Edwards said, I was living a crazy, unnatural, life. And there may be someone in the room this evening who's carrying the miserable burden of a guilty conscience. Don't let your conscience be seared. First Timothy 4 and verse 2 says, your conscience can be seared as with a hot iron. Sin will always bring misery. Isaiah 57 says, the wicked you see are like the troubled sea that cannot rest. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. The misery... Of a corrupt conscience. How good to know that our God is merciful. There may be somebody who's come into this service this evening because God has mercifully allowed you to come and mercifully allowed you to hear this message and mercifully will allow you to respond to this message so that your conscience can be free of the guilt. In the passage that we've turned to, 2 Samuel chapter 12, God in his mercy sends a minister, and the minister that he sends is a man by the name of Nathan. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're introduced to this prophet, this minister of God, Nathan, who comes into the presence of David and begins to tell David a story. It's a story purposely designed to garner David's attention. He tells the story about a man who was poor and had a little pet lamb. And immediately the shepherd's heart of David is riveted to the story. It's a story that really never asks the question. It's a question that's implied for after all now David is the king. Nathan seems to be bringing this injustice to the king for David to make a decision as to what should happen when David begins his story he says, there were two men in one city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. The poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he brought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank from his own cup and lay on his bosom and was with with him like a daughter. There came a traveler into the rich man. He spared to take of his own flock, of his own herd, to dress for the wayfarer man that had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb He dressed it, he butchered it for the man that was come to him. You know, Nathan's ministry provides a model for those who would be of help to others who are dealing with a corrupted conscience and the burden of a corrupted conscience. I find that Nathan here is willing to serve God, not men. Verse 1 says, The Lord sent Nathan. Nathan was lovingly loyal to King David, But his first loyalty was to the Lord. Maybe he'd heard rumors after all. This affair that David had had with Bathsheba would have been known by David's servants. Perhaps the rumors are spreading out and fanning out into David's family. Joab the general knew what David had done when Uriah was sent to the front in order for Uriah to die. But more than that, God specifically spoke. To Nathan with a still small voice and sent Nathan to speak to the king now this isn't the first time that Nathan has had to come to the king with a difficult message back in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 Nathan is talking to King David and David says Nathan I have this desire I want to build a temple for God and Nathan immediately responds do as your heart desires this is a godly ambition Nathan leaves the palace, and the Lord begins to impress upon Nathan's heart, don't let him do it. Don't let him do it. He's a man of war. Remember that all of his enemies are going to think that the God that he represents is an enemy to them. Don't let him do it. Nathan has to come back to David and say, David, I know this is going to hurt your heart, but God doesn't want you to build him a temple. Instead, God wants to build you a house. Nathan has had difficult conversations with David before. But folks, there's never been a conversation this difficult before. Now he's having to talk to the man who has the power to take his life about the fact that he has unjustly taken the life of someone else in the kingdom. Nathan decides he's going to serve God, not men. You see, the Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's important for every minister of the gospel, and that includes you and that includes me, to make a, a once for all decision, I'm going to do what God tells me to do. I'm not going to be a servant of men. Nathan, as a faithful minister, is serving God, and he's putting honesty above his own safety. For we read in verse 7 that he says the unthinkable to David when he says, Thou art the man. Did he say it with trembling finger? Did he say it with quivering voice? Did he say it with a blush of fear? No, I think he said it just as God had commissioned him to say it, with great power from heaven. Nathan, you see, was an honest man. And while he knew that David had already taken the life of Uzziah, he spoke honestly to a man who was carrying an awful burden. David acknowledges in Psalm 31, when I kept, Psalm 32, when I kept silence, my bones were waxing old. Perhaps David is going prematurely gray. Perhaps he's trembling when he's trying to eat his soup. David is showing his age as he tries to carry the burden of his guilty conscience. And Nathan comes as a faithful minister putting principle above people. And he begins to unravel how grossly wicked David's sin is. And on the surface, we'd say, well, who wouldn't know that? He committed adultery and he killed a man. Oh, yes, but Nathan wants David to see how fundamentally David had sinned against God. We never really do a soul's work until we fundamentally understand that all sin is against a holy God. So Nathan reminds David that God was faithful and David was sinful. In verse 8, speaking on behalf of God to David, Nathan says, And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wife. I delivered thee, he says in verse 7, from the hand of Saul. As this man puts principle above people, he points out on behalf of God that God had protected David. For 10 years, Saul had been trying to kill David. And for 10 years, God had protected David. Say, friend, every person in this room is here because of the grace of God. It's an amazing thing to think that anyone would live day after day in a culture that is speeding by at such tremendous speed. And God preserves our going out and our coming in. He protects us. God had provided for David having given him his master's house. And God had promoted David. He gave David the house of Israel and Judah, a united kingdom under the authority of David. And he promised David even greater things, saying, moreover, I would have given unto thee such and such things. But like Esau, David had despised the goodness of the Lord listen, friend, every time we sin against God, we are fundamentally despising the goodness of the Lord, the blessings that God brings. We become so desensitized to our sins that sometimes we want to make excuse for it. Years ago, I was involved in a situation that seems humorous now. There was a candy machine in the youth room in our church And the young people had discovered that if you shook it just so, candy would come out for free. Well, that same youth room was the place where the young men had to change for P.E. in the Christian school. And the youth pastor discovered that without any profit in the candy machine, the candy was going down and going down and going down. He figured it's not a mouse getting in there. Something's going on. So he asked the young people, and everyone said, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, until one person said, well, it might have been, you know, like during PE, when some people shake the machine a little bit, well, who shook the machine? I don't know. And so all the people in the PE class were gathered together, all these young men, ninth graders, 10th graders, okay, who shook the machine? I don't know, you know, I don't know, I I don't know. Amazing, no one knew. No one knew together collectively, oh, that's no big deal, it's just some candy, right? You'd probably want to give it to them for free. It, the candy wasn't the big deal, the big deal is how easily we become desensitized to the reality that what we might think is a childhood prank really is theft. So I remember the school administrator had to make a drastic decision since no one would No one would speak about who stole the candy. All the young people who were involved in it were given a suspension. You know how the parents responded? Thank you. I always wanted a suspension on my child's record. That's not how they responded. And so the school administrator said, Pastor Phelps, I think we have a situation can you talk to the parents? And I said, thank you, I'd love to. (laughs) And I remember calling together a group of parents and saying to them, I want to share some words with you that are not in the Bible. You can take a concordance and you'll never find the words snitch, rat, narc, stoolie, tattle. Those words are not in the Bible. But you will find that you are your brother's keeper. And parents, I know you're upset. But reality is, as we as believers want to mold character, we need to take the matter of sin seriously. It may seem small, but if our young people learn to carry a guilty conscience and to cover for one another, we've done them no favors. So all the suspensions held. As Paul Harvey would say, let me tell you the rest of the story. A couple of years went by and a young man from that class, it was a precocious class, was applying to be admitted to the Air Force Academy out in Colorado. When they looked at his school record, on the school record it said he'd been suspended for theft. I got an inquiry from the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado asking what this was on the student record. Now at that time I was able to laugh a little bit and say, That really needs to be put in a separate record and not on a transcript. While the matter was dealt with, it wasn't a matter that would typically be dealt with anywhere else but within, I think, the Christian community. And by the way, the young man did get his appointment. Would you rather risk your child's appointment and your child's advancement in order to see your child's conscience cleansed from carrying a burden of a guilty conscience? Or would you prefer for them to have a guilty conscience and get their advancements? Folks, you understand we're living in a world when a minister gets serious about sin, that there are a lot of people who get their hackles up and don't even realize it. Nathan was serious about sin because faithful are the wounds of a friend. David would not have known the blessing of a conscience cleansed if he didn't have a friend like Nathan. Are you that kind of friend? Friends minister to friends about Jesus and friends minister to friends when sin is affecting the lives of of a friend. What are the means that God uses to help cleanse our conscience? Our loving Heavenly Father disciplines His children after all. Hebrews 12 says, Whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son that He receives. If you're without chastisement, whereof all are partakers. Hebrews 12 says, Then are you bastards and not sons? You're illegitimate. For every wayward sinner, God sends a custom-made conviction. Sometimes it comes in a sermon. Sometimes it comes in a song. Sometimes it comes when Scripture reading or sometimes in a conversation. God knows how to individually provoke our conscience. In this passage, I see a pattern that's being woven together. Nathan is sharing an illustration of an injustice that he knows will get David's attention. And having garnered the interest of King David... He has a question embedded, it seems, in this story. While it's never asked, David being the sovereign knows it's up to him to to meet out justice on this person who's been so unjust, and so David has already said, that man who did that needs to die, and he needs to restore fourfold. He sees the injustice of the matter by coming to David, the king, Nathan is building a scenario it causes David's heart to be opened up. You see, there's a pattern in God's Word that our conscience is pricked by questions. The way it said is this, a question, a question pricks the conscience, but an accusation hardens the soul. God knew where Adam was when God says, where art thou, Adam? And God has a question for your soul. And He's asking, perhaps this evening, why are you in this service? What's God trying to teach you in this place? There's an application for sure in this text. When Nathan says, thou art the man, and points his finger at David, David's conscience is about to be cleansed. Not really because of any power that Nathan has to pronounce absolution upon the monarch. No, Nathan's simply the messenger. David's conscience is cleansed because of the mercy of God. You ever found yourself confused how is it that David could break two Old Testament commandments that are so clear with regard to the death penalty and yet continue to live? He committed adultery and he didn't die, but that's a violation of Leviticus 20 and verse 10. He committed murder. That's a violation of Leviticus 24 and verse 17, and the death penalty was not placed upon him. Why? I don't know that I have a complete answer for you. Obviously, we could wrangle in our minds and think, well, there was no Supreme Court to step in, and they're not going to be able to impeach the king. He's the sovereign. But I think there's a partial answer that I can provide. I think that God wants us to see through David that he's a God of mercy. David does not merit God's blessing not in any way but David provides a model for those who know the mercy of God David confesses his sin now Saul had been asked a question when he hadn't obeyed the Lord and he'd taken the flocks that he was not to take and Samuel had come to Saul and said what means the bleeding of the sheep and Saul blames the people oh the people they wanted to save David doesn't respond that way David immediately responds in verse 13, I have sinned. He offers no excuses. He's giving no alibis. He's not saying, but, 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 but. No. Proverbs 28 says in verse 13, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. He that covereth his sins will not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes will have mercy. It was Ben Franklin who said how few there are who have courage enough to own their faults, a resolution enough to mend them. I love the verse in Proverbs 24 and verse 16 that says, A just man falls seven times and rises up again. David confessed his sin and he comes to discover that God is gracious to forgive Immediately, David says to Nathan, or Nathan says to David in verse 13, the Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. You see, the 103rd Psalm says in verse 10, he's not dealt with us according to our sins. Psalm 130 in verse 3 says, if you should mark iniquities, Lord, who should stand? The message of God's Word is that God stands ready to forgive. Hebrews chapter 10 says in verse 22 then, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, sprinkled from an evil conscience. The message of the New Testament is this, where sin abounds, can you finish it with me? Grace abounds more. How foolish we are to think that the God who knows the thoughts and the intents of our heart Who can divide asunder the soul from the spirit and the joint from the morrow, Hebrews says. How foolish we are to think that He doesn't see us right where we are right now as we try to hide our sin. How foolish. When God has said, He that covers his sins will not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Would you seek the mercy of God this evening? You see, the only Cleansing of a corrupted conscience is the application of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's applied when we ask God for the forgiveness that he gives, which was provided for us so freely when Jesus died upon the cross of Calvary. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.